Now, if you could choose your last words, what would they be? Some people don't get to choose them. They're just stuck with what they said last before uh, they died. So American Civil War General John Sedgwick, his last words were, they couldn't hit an elephant at that distance before being shot. Marie Antoinette, apparently her last words were, excuse me, sir, because she accidentally stood on the executioner's foot on her way to the guillotine. There are more serious ones, of course. Da Vinci, he said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality that it should have. Or John Newton. I don't know what I seem to the world, but as to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then in finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, while the great great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Sometimes there's wisdom for others in last words. George Best's uh, last words were found in a handwritten note that he uh, he wrote uh, by his hospital bed. It simply said, don't die like I did. What we have in 2 Timothy is Paul's last words. This is Paul's last letter to his dear friend and co-worker in the gospel, Timothy. Now, Paul, when he talks of Timothy, often uses this language of son or child. He does here in verse 2, my beloved child. They would served together on Paul's missionary trips. They'd written books of the Bible together. If you go through the New Testament, look at the ones that Paul wrote. You see that lots of them have Timothy there as being one of the people who uh, were sending it uh, to those people. Timothy, in lots of ways, was Paul's right-hand man. You read in the letters and in Acts that he often sends Timothy to go places instead of himself. And theirs was a close and long-lasting relationship, from right from when Timothy was sim, uh, seemingly barely older than a child. No one was closer to Paul, really, than Timothy. And here, at the end of Paul's life, Paul knows that his death by execution is approaching. That's clear from what we read elsewhere in the letter. And he pens this letter to Timothy. He considers that he's finished his race and he's now passing on the baton to Timothy. So what advice will Paul pass on about finishing his race? But as we read this, we're not just to read this as Paul's words to Timothy. We're to remember that God has preserved this in the Bible for us. We're actually supposed to learn from Paul's words too. So what does God have to say to us? Well, the first thing is let it burn. Have a look at verses three to five. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. What Paul sees here is that Timothy's faith is genuine. Paul looks back at their last parting and he remembers their tears. They're so close to one another that when they parted, they cried. Timothy is now in Ephesus, involved in leading a church there. Paul is in Rome awaiting trial and likely execution. 
As we read this, this is not Paul at the end of Acts, but much later on in his ministry. He seems to get out of prison in Rome at the end of, uh, after the end of Acts. But he ends up in prison again in Rome at the end of his life. As Paul lay in prison, though he wasn't idle, day and night he was praying. What was he praying for? He was praying for Timothy. He was still involved in the mission, but he was praying for Timothy. That's how he was doing it. And he longs to see him, that he may be filled with joy. Do you have people like that, that you know, you know when you're going to see them, you're just going to light up? Because you know that there's someone that will bring you joy. Well, Timothy was that for Paul. Even in prison, Paul is sure that seeing Timothy would bring him joy. What is it that heartens Paul thinking of Timothy? Well, it's his sincere faith. We're going to see that many of the people who Paul has hung around with over the years have been shown to be fakes. They've abandoned him in prison. But not Timothy. Paul knows his faith is genuine. His grandmother had it. His mother had it. And Paul is sure that Timothy has it too. And that encourages Paul that Timothy is still going. In the face of all these other people who have fallen away, Timothy is still believing and trusting in the gospel. So at least it's not Timothy. At least Timothy has not abandoned the faith. At least Timothy has not abandoned me. And yet throughout the letter, there's this sort of subtone, if you like, that Paul fears that that might happen. Paul is not naive. He's seen this many times as people turn their backs on him. Yet Paul is certain that Timothy's faith is genuine, which means that Timothy's ministry is genuine. If Timothy's faith is genuine, then his ministry to others will be genuine gospel ministry. It seems that his ministry, he refers to it as the gift that is given to him by his laying on of hands. That's often how they set apart people in those days. And it seems that there are plenty of false ministry going on, spreading lies and making false converts. But if Timothy has genuine faith, then he will have genuine ministry. So what's Paul's advice to Timothy? What does he tell him to do? Well, he tells him to fan it into flames. Do you see that in verse 6? I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. He's saying, look, I know that you are the real deal, Timothy. So let your ministry burn. Let it spread like wildfire. Let it grow. Let it burn. We've seen over the past few weeks, haven't we, what a mixture of wind and fire can do on Ilkley Moor, haven't we? He's saying, let it go. Let it burn. Turn the spark into a fire. Don't be afraid to give it your all. Give it all that you've got. Get the bellows going to get it going. You're the real deal, so let your ministry grow. Why? Look at verse 7. For, because... God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. What he's saying here is that the spirit does not make us timid. The Holy Spirit gives us power. The Holy Spirit gives us love. The Holy Spirit gives us self-control. Power in this context, uh, in the rest of the letter, seems to be power to endure suffering. As Timothy's ministry in Ephesus grows, as he lets it burn, he's going to face opposition. 
But the Spirit grants us power to endure that opposition and suffering. Without that power, Timothy could never endure. He couldn't keep going, which is exactly what Paul wants him to do. But God has given him a spirit of power, the Holy Spirit. It's a spirit of love. Love in the context of the letter seems to be love for others rather than love for God. Without love for others, Timothy will not be able to do his ministry. He will be hurt during his ministry. He will be criticised during his ministry. Without love for his people, he's not going to keep going, is he? He's going to turn back because of the hurt and the pain. But God has given him a spirit of love, causing him to love his brothers and sisters, enough to love them to keep going, even when he faces those things. And finally, he's been given a spirit of self-control. Self-control is going to be essential to his ministry. You sometimes hear, don't you, of timid Timothy. I know I used to sort of hear this, you know, this idea that Timothy is, is really shy and this is saying, you know, don't be shy, just... Actually, if you read the letter, it seems that Timothy is a bit of a hothead, really. Uh, perhaps he's uh, been holding himself back in fear of getting into arguments because actually when he gets into discussions with people, it seems like Timothy is quite prone to lose his temper. But Paul is saying that the Spirit grants us self-control. He will, kill, he will help Timothy keep self-controlled as he shares the gospel with people. He'll help him keep level-headed and not lose his head as he shares the gospel with people, as he ministers to people in the church. After all, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? It's something that we all uh, should be growing in. So he's saying, fan this into flames because God has given us all that we need to do it. You've got this ministry and God has given us the Holy Spirit who helps us. So let it burn. But isn't this true for all of us? Because all of us have the Holy Spirit, don't we? And all of us are ministers in some sense. I know a church that apparently used to have, you know, that some churches have on the outside, you know, uh, this name of the church and then minister so-and-so, reverend. They had to minister everybody. Because actually, that's, that's what we believe, isn't it? We're all ministers. We all minister the gospel. We all teach one another. We all have ministries. Perhaps it's a ministry to our family as we teach one another the gospel. Perhaps it's a ministry to children and young people at church. Perhaps it's a ministry of telling the gospel to friends and neighbours. Perhaps it's a ministry that we have to work colleagues. Perhaps it's ministry if we're in a life group as we uh, share the word with each other. Wherever we are, we should be speaking the gospel, shouldn't we? That is our ministry, whether we're at home or at work or at school, anywhere. Even if we're not currently doing that, that is our ministry. Even if it's just a spark of a ministry, if you like, it's there. So whatever your ministry is, let it burn. Let it go from a spark to a flame, from a flame to a bonfire. Our context is not the same as Timothy's. But we do have ministries. We do have ways that we teach. And just like Timothy's context, there is plenty of bad teaching out there. So let the good stuff go out. Let's be the the spreaders of good ministry and expand that. So if you do have a ministry, which we all do in some sense, 
Let it burn. Let it grow. And the Spirit will help us as we do that, even if it doesn't come naturally to us. So we're, he's to let it burn. We're to let it burn as we minister to one another. The second thing he tells Timothy and us to do is don't be ashamed. Have a look at verses 8 to 12. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. When he says not to be ashamed here, he means not ashamed to suffer for the gospel. Paul here links someone who proclaims the gospel to someone who suffers. He says, I am a minister of the gospel. That is why I am suffering. There's a causal relationship here. If we preach the gospel, we will in some sense suffer. So if we're ashamed to suffer, if we don't want uh, that to come, how will that show itself? Well, we'll stop preaching the gospel, won't we? I faced that, uh, that choice in a very, very small way uh, a few weeks ago when it was our, our Easter services. And uh, I was trying to decide whether to post it on Otley R Town, which is a, a group on Facebook, which has, I think it's, it's something like 17,000 people, which is more than the population of Otley. So I always find that slightly confusing. Um, but I thought, oh, if I post this, there's some real nutcases on there. I'm just going to get a lot of aggro from people. So I was you know, posting about evidence for the resurrection. In the end, there was one nutcase who sort of put, <laughs> I'm probably careful recording that shit, uh, a person who <laughs> challenged, <laughs> uh, challenged it. But actually, I thought, do you know what? you just got to face it, haven't you? Um, it's, it's really easy to get criticism online, but we've just got to face it. And in the end, over 2,000 people saw that post on Otley Our Town, and only one person complained. So actually, that, that worked out quite well. But it went through my head. I thought, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to face the aggro of having all these people? We sort of do that calculation, don't we? If we're ashamed to suffer, then we won't proclaim. We won't go out. We won't put things out there, will we? But we're to endure suffering by the power of God. We've just seen that that power is the one the Spirit supplies. So we can hide away and stay safe. Or we can put our necks on the line and preach the gospel. I fear that for many of us, fear of embarrassment is what stops us from preaching the gospel. Um, as Paul sort of says, don't, don't be ashamed to suffer. Don't be ashamed to be embarrassed there. Especially since if you think about it, our suffering is tiny compared to what Paul and Timothy would face. I mean, Paul is in prison facing execution. All I was facing in that was, like I say, some person saying something nasty online. So not ashamed means not ashamed of the gospel. And not ashamed also means not being ashamed of our brothers and sisters and preachers. That's the other part of this. Throughout the letter, being ashamed of the gospel 
is linked with being ashamed of Paul. Paul was in prison and instead of defending him, some Christians were actually distancing themselves from him. Instead of rallying round him and his gospel, they were deserting him. Sometimes to defend the gospel, we need to defend other Christians. So let me give you a modern day example. Sometimes in the paper, we see Christians arrested for preaching on the streets, don't we? They're never charged in the end, but they get arrested in the first place. They get moved on. And it's really tempting sometimes, again, I face this temptation, to sort of distance ourselves from them. Their methods might not be the ones that we would use. Their emphasis might not be the one that we would have. But we've got to be careful how we think and speak about them. Because in the end, they're brothers and sisters preaching the gospel. They may be going about it in a different way. But we've got to ask the question, is it their methods we don't like? Or is it their message? We have to be careful. And we should defend our brothers and sisters when we can. Dissing other Christians who preach the gospel doesn't adorn the gospel. So we need to be careful how we treat other Christians who get in trouble for preaching the gospel. Because actually, as well, that could be us one day. And not ashamed, he tells us as well, because we have a glorious gospel. You notice that in the middle of our section, he sort of just mentions the gospel and, you know, who saved us. And then off he goes into this wonderful explanation of the gospel about God's purposes and grace. And it's almost like he can't help himself when he, when he mentions things like that. It's almost as if he's saying, why would you be ashamed of the gospel that brings light and life and immortality? Why would you be ashamed of a gospel which speaks of a saviour who overcame death itself? Why would you be ashamed of a gospel that gives us a holy calling, actually sets us apart in life? Why would you be ashamed of a gospel that's so effective that it can save even the vilest sinner? Because it's not by works, it's by grace. How could we ashamed, be ashamed of the gospel when it's such good news? It's almost as if Paul is sort of putting that out there in there. And finally, not ashamed because God is guarding the gospel. Now you get different translations of this verse. And there's that, uh, I, I, we used to sing a song when I was younger. Um, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able. If you know to keep what I've committed unto him until that day. You notice the ESV as it's slightly different, that it's not what, he's not keeping what Paul has, but he's keeping what he has given him. So if you look at verse uh, 12, uh, but I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been <coughs> entrusted to me. So not what I have entrusted to him, but what he has entrusted to me. And this seems to be the correct translation. What has uh, God uh, entrusted to him? Well, he's entrusted to him the gospel. That's his job, isn't it? That's what he's just been talking about. So it's not that Paul is saying that I've confessed all my sin to God and he's going to keep that till judgment day. It's saying that God has given me the gospel and actually God is, is looking after it until judgment day. God is guarding the gospel. So that means we don't need to be ashamed because God is making sure that the gospel is guarded. God will not allow it to be changed. God will not allow the gospel flame to go out. God will not let Paul's life's work be in vain. What he's saying here is that the gospel he is preaching will survive. 
the gospel that he's preaching will thrive. So Paul has no need to be ashamed of the gospel because his work will last. He's doing something lasting. The gospel will still be there when Jesus comes back. That's what he's saying. And the same goes for us. The gospel we believe will endure. (coughs) Nero, who persecuted Christians, is dead. Sartre, who declared that God is dead, is dead. But the gospel is still alive and kicking, isn't it? And changing people's lives. And this is the gospel we believe. So we've no need to be ashamed of the gospel. But it's not just God guarding the gospel. Paul entrusts Timothy with this job too. And in many ways, this is the central theme of the the letter, guarding the gospel. And all our titles of the different sessions relate to that. So finally, guard the gospel. Paul was entrusted with the gospel. That's what we saw there. He, along with God's help, has been guarding the gospel. And now he passes that responsibility on to Timothy. And the rest of the letter, in a way, is about this. But first off, he gives us two quick ways, if you like, are two things to do with guarding the gospel. The first is live the gospel. (coughs) Have a look at verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He's to follow the pattern that he has heard from Paul. He's to live out what Paul preached, which was the gospel. You see, the gospel doesn't just affect the head, what we believe, It affects the whole of life. We are to live out the implications of the gospel. The facts of the gospel are clear, aren't they? Jesus died on a cross, saving us from sin and its outcome, hell. That's got to change our life, surely, if we believe that. (coughs) Just think of how the Bible applies this. If he laid down his life for us, we should lay down our life for one another. In view of God's mercy... Brothers, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. If you died to sin, how can you live in sin? So he died on the cross and that needs to be lived out in our lives. He rose from the dead, conquering death. If death is not the end, then surely that's got to make a difference to how we live now. There is a life that goes with the gospel that we are to live. Titus, uh, Paul, Paul in Titus talks about the truth that accords, that is connected to, that is linked with godliness. Well, the gospel goes hand in hand with a changed life. It's not just a ticket to heaven. It's a truth to be lived out. Want to know what it looks like to be lived out? Look at Jesus. Even look at Paul, he's going to tell us later on. A life given over to the gospel. Remember, Paul wasn't divine. He wasn't the son of God, was he? He was a mere man, yet gave himself totally to God and his gospel. So he's to do that in faith and love, the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He's to have a life characterized by those two things, faith, trusting in God, and love, loving others. The gospel will not be guarded if it's not lived out. It'll become something academic and remote, It'll become something theoretical and detached from reality. Something that no one will believe because it makes no difference to the hearers. You'd expect something so monumental, wouldn't you? As God coming into the world and dying for us to change something, wouldn't you? So when we don't live that out, it seems to suggest that it's not true. 
So guard the gospel by living out the gospel. Let people see it in action. And then he just says it quite plainly. Guard the gospel. Look at verse 14. (coughs) By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposits entrusted to you. He's to guard what has been entrusted to him, the gospel. What does that mean? Well, he's going to explain it more in the next chapter. But that word there implies to protect, to watch, to preserve. It's something that he's to do by the Holy Spirit. Timothy is not alone in this task. God is guarding the gospel again here, but through Timothy. His Holy Spirit will be helping him as he does it. The Spirit has helped Paul preserve the gospel. Now the Spirit will help Timothy do the same. If the gospel had changed or or died out, Paul might have reason to be ashamed. The true gospel would be something that we read about in history books. But Timothy is to guard it and God will be guarding it there with him. So the Spirit has helped Paul and will now help Timothy. And then what we get right at the end here is two futures set before him. Paul does this all the way through the letter. Sort of two possible paths that he could go down as a way to sort of bring it home to Timothy. The first one is uh, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Have a look at verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, if you, we don't know much about these people, apart from the fact that they live in the region of Asia. Uh, that's the west sort of side of Turkey. It's not the whole of, sort of the continent. There was an, a specific area in those days. Asia is the very place where Timothy is. And he's saying here that all in Asia have turned away from me. All of them have turned away from Paul. Presumably not wanting uh, to be associated with him while in prison. Ashamed of him and his gospel. All in Asia have turned away from Paul. Now that must be hyperbole, mustn't it? Because Timothy's there and he hasn't. Uh, Also, it's unlikely that he means falling away altogether... Because that would be pretty big if all the churches had done that. But it's likely that what's happened is that they've turned aside to an easier gospel. The sort of gospel that won't get you thrown in prison like Paul has been. (coughs) So it's likely that you could still find them on a church pew in Asia. But they've shunned Paul on his gospel, whatever they've done. And it means that if this is the area where Timothy is living, the pressure will be on Timothy to do the same. It's as though Paul's saying, will you go along with the crowd, ditching me and presumably my gospel? Or are you going to do something else? Because he says, you are aware of that, doesn't he, in verse 15. He's not giving him new information. He's challenging Timothy about what he's going to do. But there is another option. Onesiphorus. Have a look at verses 16 to 18. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But he arrived in Rome. When he arrived in Rome, he searched me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. We don't know much about this guy either. But we're told he was not ashamed of Paul's chains. He was not afraid to come and visit a supposed criminal, even though that would likely tar him with the same brush. He came again and again to refresh Paul. He found him out immediately as soon as he got to Rome. 
Here is someone who's not ashamed of the gospel and the suffering that accompanies it. He showed it in Ephesus and he shows it again in Rome. Paul asked that God would bless his household. So which is it going to be, Timothy? Turn away with Phygelus and Homogenes? Or keep faithfully serving like Onesiphorus? I'm sure many of us could put our own examples with these names, a bit easier to pronounce. But people who have turned away and people who have remained faithful to the end. Which path will you take? Will you turn aside to nothing? Will you turn aside for an easier version that distorts or waters down the gospel? Or will you keep faithfully serving, guarding the gospel? It would be a shame, wouldn't it, if we reached the end of our lives. Uh, not as able and as mobile as we might have been when we were younger. For our last words to be, I wish I'd done more to serve him. I wish I hadn't wasted so many years. I wish I'd done my part when I could defending the gospel. Beverly Knight said of last words, shoulda, woulda, coulda are the last words of a fool. Well, let's not let them be our last words. Let's keep going and keep guarding the gospel. And we'll find out more how to do that as we go on through the weekend. What I want us to do now is uh, just have a time of prayer in threes and fours, just for a few minutes. We're probably going to have a few times of open prayer uh, over the weekend, so can I lay down some guidelines uh, for us? Firstly, you don't have to pray. No one will judge you for not praying. Can I remind you as well, as I often say to my boys, it's not a competition. It's not a competition, it's not an exam, it's not a poetry contest. It's not a three-point sermon. We've just had one of those. It can be one line. It can be one word. I think some of my most heartfelt prayers actually are one word long. Like help. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. That's two words. But you get the idea. <laughs> I knew someone was going to do that. But we pray out loud to be an encouragement to one another. That's why we, we, we do that. But we're not talking to one another. We're talking to God. God. 